This episode of Agency Deal Masters is brought to you by Account Insight, the B2B programmatic advertising platform for B2B agencies. Account Insight helps you deliver targeted, tailored ads to high value companies because today's B2B buyer decides digitally and in teams of up to 40 people. Account Insight helps you solve the problem of marketing to whole accounts, not just to one person. That's why smarter B2B marketers use account-based advertising. Founded by former WPP executives with extensive experience building and delivering B2B solutions, several friends of the show and leading B2B agencies use Account Insight to deliver targeted ads. You can find out more at accountinsight.ai. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Chris Hurst is the CEO of Havas UK. He was at Fallon London, then became CEO at Grey before becoming CEO of Havas UK. Only one of the largest agency holding groups in the world with 40,000 employees and revenues in the billions. Chris is on the Powerless 1000 list. He's always appearing on in the BBC, Politics Show, CNBC and Sky News. We talk about the future of the holding groups. And I have to say, with all this talk about the holding groups being in trouble, Havas have put themselves in a really good position. Vivendi Group own them. And unlike a lot of other agencies out there, their partners in, in their network are not just advertising agencies. They have music labels, gaming companies, film studios, video production platforms. You may have heard of Universal Music, Canal Plus, Gameloft. We get an inside view into what clients are asking for in pitches. Spoiler alert, start investing in CX. Uh, we talk about his book, No Bullshit Leadership, which is a fascinating read. Highly recommend it. My only wish is that we actually had more time because I literally could have spoken to him for hours. I, I could talk about what we talked about, or I could just shut up and say, without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Chris Hurst. Chris Hurst is the global CEO of Habas Creative, a multidisciplinary marketing services group. After a decade in CEO positions, he has a proven track record of leading transformation. He believes in the principles of an open culture where people are given permission to take risks and make mistakes. He is actively engaged in broadening the appeal of the advertising industry as he sees diversity and social mobility as key factors in the future health of the creative industries. His book, No Bullshit Leadership, was the Business Book Awards winner for 2020. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Chris Hurst, welcome to Agency Deal Masters. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Super excited to have you on the show. We can talk about lots of different things today. This can go in many different directions, from your book to leadership to diversity, the media and advertising industry, where we are and sort of where it's going. But let's start with your background. You get your degree from Oxford in engineering science. You've held several senior roles in BBH, Fallon London, Gray, and now Havas. Was this the way you always thought your career would pan out? No. Next question. Yeah, there you go. It's going to be really short. No. <laughs> uh, no, no I, can, I can expand that into a paragraph if you like. Uh, sure. I suppose... I suppose you need to take a little step back before that, which is I did, um, I, I don't know, I certainly at, 80, at 18, in fact, at 16, had no idea about what I wanted to do for a job. But at, but at 16, you choose your A-levels. And, you know, I, I chose maths and physics 
uh, which once you do that as your A-levels, that kind of leads you to what degree you might end up doing. So I ended up doing engineering. And my first job, in fact, was uh, as I worked for a year in a, a glass factory uh, in St. Helens in the Northwest in between Manchester and Liverpool. Pilkington Glass, for anybody in the Northwest will have heard of Pilkington Glass, Pilks. Uh, so I worked as an apprentice in St. Helens at the age of 18. And actually, I, I, I had a brilliant time. There's no, no question about that. But what happened really was after a year in a factory then, and then I did a four-year degree uh, doing engineering. And at the end of that, after, that's, this is now five years after I've left school, um, the one thing I knew with absolute certainty was I didn't want to work as an engineer and I didn't want to work in a factory. Uh, that, that, that much I'd worked out. And, <laughs> and to be honest with you, I, I needed, wanted to get a job. And I don't think there was any greater science behind my selection process than I chose something that was as far away from engineering as I, as I could imagine and ended up on advertising. But at the, but at the <laughs> yeah, but at the age of eight, eighteen, or even frankly, even at the age of twenty-two, uh, twenty-three, I had no real concept of, of advertising as as a thing you could go and do as a job. Um, I mean, to me, real you know, jobs were people that worked in factories in some shape or form, or industry, or what have you. So, yeah. Hmm. But that's interesting because that kind of engineering, mathematics, scientific background, very left brain orientated. And I guess when you started in the industry, you could argue that it was more dominated by creative right brain thinkers. But what does that kind of left brain thinking give you? <laughs> Considering now we're in a world that is far more dominated by data and data science, and it seems as though that the way that's the way the world is going. We can talk about that a little bit later. But <laughs> what does that kind of left brain thinking bring to you? your experiences and the way that you run companies? Um, I don't really see myself, and by the way, nor do I see anybody else particularly. I don't, I don't as right or left brain thinkers. Um, I just think humans are a lot more complicated uh, than that. I, I don't think that creativity is, I don't, I don't think creativity is a universal um, uh, in the same way that, frankly, the ability to understand maths is universal. Now, of course, some people are a bit better at one or the other. Um, I'm not positioning, positioning myself as a great critic. But I, I think that uh, the best answer I can give you that, that really is, I, I've always been quite an academic person. You know, I, I, that's just, you know, some people are good at different things. I, I'm just an academic person. The, the process of learning is something that I've always structured, almost academic learning I'm talking about here. has always been something that I've actually quite enjoyed. Uh, I know that might sound a bit odd. And I think what I got, I got a real, I remember one of the biggest shocks of, I had two big shocks that still, not, they're not the only shocks of my life, but they still stay with me. One was at the age of 18 when I left school and I grew up in rural Northumberland and I went to work on a shop floor in a factory in the Northwest. I mean, that was that was a that was a big shock to my system, I can tell you. Um, and the second was at nineteen when I when I got to university, and the reason that was a shock was because up until then I'd always found schoolwork. I was just one of those people that could sort of just do it. And, and I got to university, and it's the hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, how on earth I managed to get that degree, and and 
the reason I share that with you is I think the main thing I take from it is is a sort of a, a belief that if you really, you know, you, you can do it. If you really, really stick at it and graft, that's not the only thing that matters by any stretch of the imagination. But but I tell you what, that's to, to achieve anything worthwhile, that is fundamental. So the things I've taken from it are not necessarily, you know, I can every day I can apply maths to uh, to my job. But I suppose a bloody-minded persistence is the thing that maybe I took from it. Um, The other thing that I'd say is slightly a bit closer to, I suppose, the heart of your question is one of my favourite quotes. I think it was by some 19th century uh, headmaster at Eton. Um, I I don't remember his name. But but I think it's a great encapsulation of the power, enduring power of education education of all types okay not just education at school and and he said um the shadow of lost knowledge protects us from many illusions mm-hmm. and I, and i think it's an incredibly potent uh and powerful insight into essentially and the way i see that is the fact that you knew it once means that you know that if you need to you can know it again Hmm. The second is all, I think, is it means it just makes you a bit harder to bullshit. It just means that, okay, I, you know, uh, I may not, I may not be able to remember all the nuances around this, but I kind of know enough. I understand how these structures and these things work. And I also believe that if I have to, I can learn it. That's a fantastic kind of segue, actually, to your book, No Bullshit Leadership. (laughs) What hasn't been said about the topic that needs to be said? Why did you write the book? And tell us a little bit more about it. I wrote it because I did feel like there was something new to be said. And I think like the opening sentence or something says something like, you know, the last thing the world needs right now is another book on leadership. But I think that there, I do think there's a lot of bullshit around the subject. And I do think that that matters. And that's because my definition of a leader, I think that's where you have to start with understanding what a leader is, or at least I felt like I needed to have my opinion on that before I could write the book. And I think that most leaders aren't the people we usually think of when we think of leaders. Most leaders are not CEOs and prime ministers and dot-com billionaires and generals. By my definition, anybody that has people they are responsible for is a leader, which means that for you know most people listening to this podcast in some shape or form will be a leader. Even if you've got two people you're responsible for, if you run a Sunday league football team, you know, um, a ward in a hospital, a department in a school, you're a leader. And yet most people in those positions, I certainly didn't when I was in those positions, didn't think of myself as a leader. And most organizations don't think about or treat people in those positions as leaders. And that's a problem because that means that people aren't fulfilling their potential because we all know that in our societies and never is this more true than today we need more better leaders everywhere Mm. and yet there's a whole industry what what i refer to in in the book is the leadership industrial complex that makes billions and i and i don't exaggerate from selling us stuff around leadership and my argument is that most of it is snake oil it's bullshit and the problem that that creates is first of all it inhibits people who are already in leadership positions from fulfilling their potential. And, you know, and I, by my definition, I've just established in the UK alone, there's hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of those people. And second, potentially e- even worse, 
it excludes whole sections of our society from feeling like leadership is something that they could ever aspire to. And so I suppose my objective, it's a pretty grand objective, but my objective was through the decomplexification, if that's a word, of leadership. It's a complex word. Yeah, that's a, that is a bullshit word, isn't it? Uh, uh, I've got to be careful. You know, we, we can, you know, rather than talk about it, we actually can find a way to get more better leaders everywhere. You say leadership is simply getting from one place to another. The first task of any leader then is to agree and decide where we're leading people. Explain. So if a leader is anybody who has people they're responsible for, for me, leadership is the navigation of a group of people from a defined point in the present to a different and clearly defined place in the future. So leadership is about movement. And is about change. Now, in order to do that, you do have to very clearly understand what your start point is, that that is a a critical task for a leader. You also have to very clearly understand where it is you're trying to get to. That also is a critical task for a leader. But for me, despite what the leadership industrial complex tells us, and despite what lots of leadership theory tells us, Even though those questions are important, neither of them are that difficult and neither of them are leadership. They are parts of a leader's task, but leadership is the journey between the two points. And for me, leadership is difficult, but not complicated. You talk about Eddie Eddie Jones, the um, England head coach for rugby. He set an objective to win the next World Cup. And you say that that's a very clear, simple objective that everyone can sort of see, can get behind. That's a clear example of movement from one place to another. But objectives in business are far more nuanced than than that, than winning the World Cup um, or, or an event like that, because sport is very zero-sum based. Business and life is not. Explain. But of course, you know, life and business is, is more complicated. But at the same time, perhaps it's not in this. And by that, what I mean is, for me, nearly all businesses, and by nearly all, I mean like 99.99%, maybe more, are basically trying to do a common thing better than the competition. That is what nearly all businesses are trying to do. Very few businesses uh, find themselves in the position of having a, a genuinely unique product. I'm not saying there are any. But most are trying to do a common thing better than the competition. And yet when businesses come to thinking about what their objective is, their, their business or, or their team objective, however you want to think about it, they have been told, they've been taught by the leadership industrial complex that one of the defining tasks, almost a sort of a measure of a leader's virility is to come up with something for their objective that is not just sensible, let's say, from a business point of view, but has to be unique, has to look clever, you know, has to sound different, has to sound sexy. And the problem with this is, you know, I've been part of leadership teams. I mean, I've been guilty. This is not like like a lot of this is me learning from me, by the way. What you've but, done. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
the, the problem with this is, is that leaders and leadership teams convince themselves that defining this objective is this sort of defining task for a leader. And, and I've certainly been part of leadership teams where we've tried so hard to come up with something incredibly clever and differentiated and unique and witty or whatever it is that we've never actually got beyond trying to answer that question. And yet, even when we've answered it, we haven't actually begun the leading bit yet. I mean, that's my argument. So the reason that I use the, the rugby example is what I'm saying is, is that, that defining that, it's, it's a place that you're aiming for. So I think the example I give in the book is, why not say we want to be the best? Hmm. Let's not get too hung up on if whatever business, whatever business sector you're in, you'll all be able to have a pretty good go at saying, well, we, un- we understand within our sector what the characteristics of the best are in our sector, okay? And use it as a place we're aiming for. What we have to then spend our time doing is saying, well, hang on, okay, we've got that. Now the really difficult bit begins. What are the things we need to do in order to be that? So if we say, okay, we're going to have the best customer. I-, I run a coffee shop and I decide, you know what I'm going to do? It's virtually impossible for any business to be the best at anything. What we're going to do is we're going to have the best customer service, you know, particularly relevant at the moment where everything's virtual, having everything delivered. We're going to have the best customer service of any coffee shop, you know, in London. Mm. I mean, that's a pretty high bar to get to, right? And and if you get to that bar, you've got a reasonable expectation that your business is going to be doing quite well. But it then forces you to answer all sorts of really tough questions about what are things you're going to need to do in order to achieve that point. Mm. And yes, it does meet my measure of doing a common thing better than the competition. Customer services are universal. How do you do it brilliantly is 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 very tough. So I, I think, yes, I agree with you. It's a simplified version, but I don't agree in the sense that we have to necessarily make our lives any more complicated than they need to be. That leads us to the conversation about execution then, because you say by far the most challenging part of the leader's tasks lies not in strategy, but in execution. Strategy is explaining your route. Execution is actually doing it. So how do leaders get their team to execute brilliantly? Well, this really is the question. I think we talked about my early days in maths earlier on and one of the things I, I did when I was writing it is I thought, well, I wonder if there's a, a, a leadership equation. Uh, and, and I wrote one. I wrote an equation. I said leadership impact equals clarity times action. And, and by clarity, I actually meant all of the things that you might, all of the really important tasks that you might, um, you might record, you need to do while you're preparing yourself in order to begin your journey. So they are your objectives and your values and your culture and these kind of things. But the purpose for me writing the equation to say was was to say, no matter how brilliant your thinking is, your impact will be zero if your action equals zero. But I think that it's also true that even if your strategy, let's say, is imperfect, and by the way, it will be imperfect. It, it will be, by, it just will be. Even if your strategy is imperfect, if you bias towards action doing, you will still create impact. And I think one of the really, for me, uh, action is about taking decisions. It's about being able, you know, and a leader, all of us, but people in leadership positions, particularly, whether it's whether you lead three people or 30,000, is you have to be an effective decision maker. And this is also a subject that an awful lot has been sort of talked about and, and written about. But for me, you know, it's a bit like driving, okay? You very rarely, 
you very rarely meet somebody who admits to being a bad driver. But if you spend more than half an hour on the M6, you know there's an awful lot of bad drivers out there, right? And I think it's the same with leaders and decision making. You're very rarely going to meet somebody in a leadership position who's going to say, oh, do you know what? I'm rubbish at making decisions. And yet, any of us who've spent any time in any organization of any size knows that there's an awful lot of people in leadership positions are bad at making decisions. Sure. And yet, there's there's nothing more debilitating uh, for a leadership team, for a leader as an individual, for the people that there's nothing more frustrating to work for somebody who's not prepared to make enough decisions quickly enough. And and I think one of the you know the, the reason, of course, people. Uh, the reason that people aren't good at it, frankly, and by my definition, it's about making enough decisions quickly enough, that people aren't because they worry about getting it wrong. They worry about decisions being wrong. And, and my argument is actually what you need to do is ex- is kind of get yourself to a sort of, that's that cheesy, but like a zen-like acceptance that you are going to get decisions wrong because you are without question. And in actual fact, just accept that that's going to happen and actually shift your worry away from getting decisions wrong to not making enough decisions quickly enough because it's decision-making that moves you along your journey. Now, of course, I mean, if you if every single decision you take is a disaster, then you're going to fail. But, but the fact of the matter is if you don't take decisions, you're going to fail as well. I mean, ultimately, this isn't, you know, this, you have to make on balance good decisions, but that's the leader's task. That's what you're there for. I mean, you know, it's you, you ultimately as a leader are judged on your results. But I think people delay making decisions in the hope that some future insight will arrive to, to suddenly clarify everything and everything becomes beautifully clear and perfect. But a decision is by definition a choice that you take in a context where you have, where there is uncertainty about the outcome. If you're certain about the outcome, then there's, it's not a decision. I mean, you'd be mad to take the bad choice if you were clear, 100% clear what the good choice was. That That's not a decision. A decision is a choice you make when you aren't clear of the outcome. Therefore, you've just got to get used to doing it. And that's how you move along the journey. Mm. Final question on the book before we talk about Havas and advertising and media and Mm. the world that we're in today. If people could take just one idea from the book, what would it be? That's a great question. Um, I think it probably is the equation, you know, that that I wrote. Leadership impact equals clarity times action. So I, I say to people, you know, if you, there's all this noise around the subject of leadership, but if you just remember two words as a leader, and you, and you ask yourself, you know, am I delivering against those two words? Those two words are clarity and action. You, people, the people that work for you and the people you work for, nearly everybody in a leadership position in reality works for somebody else, even if it's ultimately shareholders. First of all, you need to be really, really clear about whatever it is you're trying to do, whatever it is you're trying to achieve. And also, I think, also clear about what the problem is. Let's call, use that language. The problem is you're trying to fix. So w- where are we today? How clear can I be about that? How clear can I be about uh, where I'm trying to get to? And I always say with regard to clarity, uh, don't overcomplicate, but do overcommunicate. I think that's, you know, around clarity. And, and action is the way you get along that, you travel along that 
that journey, you know, and I think you need to be bold, you need to be decisive, you need to be ambitious. Um, but action is the thing that will get you there. And without taking enough decisions and having a culture that allows others to make effective decisions as well, you know, you're, you're never going to get there. So clarity and action. Let's talk a little bit about Havas and the, the holding companies. Havas is one of the six biggest marketing holding companies in the world alongside WPP, Omnicom, Dentsu, Aegis, uh, IPG, and, and Publicis. In recent years, though, we've seen the emergence of Facebook and Google sort of take more and more ad budgets, and the consulting firms like IBM and Accenture and, and Bain are sort of increasingly having more and more sway in the boardroom. Uh, we're seeing media owners like The Times and The Guardian sort of provide their clients with advertising offerings as well. In this context, how does Havas look at the future of its business and the way that the world is going? Wow, that's a that's a big old chunky. That's a, that's book two. Uh, that's a that's a big old that's chunky <laughs> question. Uh, so so first of all, I think that the our businesses and the marketing services space is you know is a, is a big space in 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 the UK, for example. And by the way, this is true of our competitors as well. In the, in the UK, for example, we have about 15 different businesses. The thing that makes us different to our competitors is there's virtually no overlap between those. So to give you a, an idea of the breadth of the marketing services space, we have 15 distinct businesses, all of which service very clear different parts of that marketing services spectrum. So it's a big, broad space. Uh, and all of our businesses, and, and I think it's always interesting the language we use to describe ourselves, our business is a consultancy business. You know, we talk about agencies and consultancies, but our, our businesses are all consultancy businesses. And our businesses all have this fundamentally the same business model as every other consultancy, uh, which is we sell uh, our time. We, we're all, pretty all consultancies basically are paid an, an, an hourly rate for delivering consultancy to clients. Why do clients pay for consultants per se? Well, they pay for consultants because they believe those businesses can can do things uh, better than they can do it themselves. And, and you can define better. That's There's all sorts of reasons for that, but that's the fundamentals of it. So, so do I think that there will continue to be a requirement for consultancy businesses in the marketing services space? 100%. Because there's a there's an ability for uh, businesses, consultancy businesses, to sort of aggregate a you know what 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 is our business? What are what is a consultancy business? Well, it's made up of two things. It's made up of talent and culture. There's nothing else. We don't own factories or anything like that. Talent and culture, and the most important one of those actually, I think, in terms of differentiating the sort of the bad, the average, the great is culture. You could create an, an, an organizational culture is about creating creating an environment, the, the environment the leader creates for their teams to outperform. And I think great marketing services businesses will continue to be able to provide services to clients of all shapes and sizes that clients will continue to pay for. Now, has that landscape changed significantly? Yes, I, I think it has. So I'll, I'll give you a... Um, I'll give you a, a very live and relevant example uh, that we've seen in the past, let's say, I mean, three months, I mean, as short as that. We've seen two very significant shifts in terms of the kind of questions we are being asked, uh, in, let's say in a new business context, because that's quite a good, new business is quite a good kind of uh, bellwether, I think, for what the what, what the wider industry is thinking. The first is a, a huge increase in what we call CX pitches so customer engagement customer experience pitches 
Um, and so that, you know, you talked at the start about data and technology and digital, um, you know, that, that is where increasingly, so outside of media, we'll, we'll talk about media separately, but, but in the sort of what you might have referred to as the creative agency space, even though it's not a very good definition these days, uh, we see the CX space clients asking questions about how they manage digital transformation. I mean, of course, what virtually every business has come through the past 12 months and is asking themselves, you know, what does the future hold? What does this mean to me? Whether you've had a good pandemic or bad pandemic, everybody's asking those questions. What's the new world going to be, you know? And I think the CX space is the place that clients are coming for to ask questions about how do you help me transform my business? Obviously, e-commerce, for not it's not always about e-commerce, but that being a, a, a very, very common question these days. So that's one huge change. And actually, at the moment, I... I can only give you anecdotal versions of this, but my perception is, if anything, that space is actually growing. So you said the, the first thing that clients are asking more about is CX pitches. Um, so their clients are demanding more examples of customer experience. What's the second thing that clients are asking for in pitches? So the second big change we've seen is a very, very significant increase in uh, pitches that we would... I suppose we would call integrated pitches where clients are saying, here is, here is all the things in the marketing services space that we do or we think we should do, whatever it is. And of course, that's media and CX and creative and often a load of other things as well, PR and social and all that stuff. And we're seeing a very significant increase in pitches that you might call in integrated pitches, which again, it's not that they... It's not that they weren't happening. It's just that it feels like this is now, they're just coming one after the other after the other. One of the drivers for that is kind of the same as the CX piece, which is businesses are just asking themselves, hang on, we just need to kind of, we just need to relook at everything, you know, we, you know, coming out of the back of this. I think it would be naive of me to not say that clients weren't also looking for efficiency of their spend. I mean, the, the, and, and I include agency fees within that. And of course, clients want efficiency and effectiveness. Agencies want to deliver efficiency and effectiveness. Uh, and so we're seeing a big uptick in that. So when brands choose to work with Havas over any of the other competing holding companies, why are they doing that? Why are they choosing Havas over an Omnicom, an IPG, a publicist, go down the list? I think there's three things that, that genuinely make us unique at Havas. Uh, the first is uh, what we call our village model. So that is in every market around the world, we have uh, all of our businesses co-located under a single P&L. Uh, and certainly in our key hub locations, London, Paris, New York, Singapore, etc. I believe that we are better able because of that model, to deliver against clients who are coming to us and asking us these big integrated questions. So one. Two, uh, I think our ownership structure, we, we have, we are owned by Vivendi, which is one of, even though we're, if you look at us as Havas, we're the smallest of the six holding companies, which I'll actually come to in a minute, because I actually think increasingly that is a, actually a um, advantage. But but we are also owned by Vivendi, which is one of the world's biggest entertainment businesses. So many people in the UK haven't heard of Vivendi. It's a big French-owned 
business, but you will have heard of the other brands, other businesses within Vivendi. So as well as Havasta's uh, Studio Canal, who make film movies, Paddington, Paddington 2, for example, was Studio Canal. Yeah. There's Canal Plus, which is uh, like essentially Sky in France. Uh, there's Gameloft, which does what it says in the tin. It makes uh, computer games, and a very interesting and dynamic sector, as I'm sure you know. And the, the, the sort of the, the, the jewel in the crown, if you like, is Universal Music. Again, one of the big three music companies. And so not only, does, not only do we have a different ownership structure, I think it allows us to genuinely walk the walk when we're talking to clients about providing them with with marketing, marketing, so real world marketing solutions, but they really can function in the in the entertainment content space. And I think that it allows us to take solutions to clients that just wouldn't be possible for some of our competitors. And the third difference is, I believe, genuinely because we are big enough to be able to say to any client, we can do, we can do what you need anywhere in the world. We are these days, particularly coming off the back of a pandemic, we are smaller, which makes us more agile, as well as I think our our ownership structure makes us more agile than our competitors. So I think I think that those are kind of my sensible agency creds answers. But but my, you know, other answer is I think ultimately the the reason that any client chooses to work with any consultancy, any agency ends up being about people. At the end of the day, I can give a client as many kind of sensible, rational reasons for coming to working with us. They go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm also not naive. And I know that all of my competitors have got lots of good, sensible reasons, rational reasons to go and work with them as well, right? I mean, I know that's how it goes. Agencies are good at talking about themselves. Sure. Um, but I think ultimately, when our clients choose us, they choose us because they feel like we've got better people and a better culture that can suit their requirements at that time. Again, I probably shouldn't say it, but I think that's true of all of my competitors as well, which is why I go back to something I said earlier. Actually, our task is to do a common thing better than the competition. How do we convince more than our fair share of clients that our talent and our culture is better than our competitors? And I think an interesting corollary to that question is if you buy that argument, one of the things you then need to be doing is saying, how do I persuade more than my fair share of the best talent to come and work for us? And I I once toyed with this idea at, uh, it's actually when I was at Gray, you know, this sort of thought experiment. What if we what if we started to think about ourselves as being in the talent acquisition business? You know, what if that was our uh, our objective? And we really single-mindedly did that. How would that play out? And I think it's a, it's a good thought experiment, and it's certainly something all agencies should ask themselves from time to time. So you raise an important point there about um, talent acquisition and becoming the best place, the most attractive place in the marketplace for the best talent. How do you do that when the consultancies are offering to pay more, Google and Facebook are offering to pay sometimes up to 30% more in salaries? How are you attracting the best people to come and work at the company? I, I, don't, I don't think there's a, a single simple answer to that. I think that a good way of measuring for any leader is to ask yourself, Am I good for the careers of the people that work for me? Hmm. And if the answer to that is, yeah, 
pretty good, then then you're going to attract and retain more than your fair share of the best people. And being good for people's careers, by the way, as an aside note, it always makes me laugh a bit when you when you read like, you know, all that sort of Harvard Business Review HR. And they say, you know what, we've done this survey and we've asked loads of people and they all put money at the bottom of what makes them happy about their job. And what they really want is some of you know and again, somebody to walk past and say thank you. And I think, you know what? <laughs> That's just bullshit. <laughs> I mean, they want more than money. But money yeah, okay, let's be realistic. People want to get paid properly, you know. But it, but the bit that so, I do agree with, it's definitely not. Yeah. It's definitely not all about being able to pay the most. I mean, even within our leaving aside Facebook. I mean, you know, we particularly in the UK, we work in a very fluid market in the UK in the marketing services. You know, a good a good agency at the top of its game pretty well consistently throughout my career has has experienced 20% turnover of people you know i mean i mean not if you've maybe got 10 people i don't know but you know 20% is is a reasonable turnover of people even the top, top dollar agencies so it's not just that it's uh, you know so it's not just that other people have come on, come along and able to pay more so i do think we have to be able to we do have to be able to pay competitively i do think that by and large we can pay competitively but i think we also have to remember that it is about being able to provide somewhere where people can feel a sense of belonging and a sense of personal reward and achievement and and a good measure of that is am i good for the careers of the people that work for me a good measure is that and and i think that's a pretty by the way a pretty demanding task to set yourself particularly given people these days want all sorts of different things from their careers and your ability as a culture and organization to embrace that as best you can, I think, is a great way to, to get people to come and work with you and to stay with you. Let's talk about engaging the consumer um, and specifically with the relation to data, which is becoming increasingly important in both B2C and, and B2B. How do you define what creative marketing is? You know, people like Keith Weed says, you know, the thing separating effective and ineffective marketing is the big idea executed by really good, good creative. But when messages are customized to individuals, as we're now seeing with the increase in programmatic, um, not to a mass audience, does that individualized message sort of shove aside that big creative idea that is executed well? God, that's a hard question. Um, I agree with Keith Weed in that a powerful brand still did and does and will need a really big unifying idea that helps you understand what that brand stands for in the world you know what it's what it's going to what it's going to do for you what it's going to offer you that guarantee of product performance and all those and provenance and uh, all those kind of and its its sense of its values and i think all successful brands still still need that big unifying idea. But I also think that being able to reach people individually at the appropriate point, you know, whatever that, whatever that is for you and, and the brand, to be able to reach you at the appropriate point, uh, I think is, is, is a very powerful way of connecting with you and potentially, you know, making a sale. So, so, you know, for example, you play tennis or something, you know, whatever, and you have a tennis elbow, you know, if 
if at the approach, if if a brand is able, when I just have got back from playing tennis, to deliver me a message saying, you know, got tennis elbow by whatever it is, my brand, that's that that seems to be that seems to be a good thing to do. But it, but but I think the thing people forget is there's lots of products and brands out there that I can use for my tennis elbow. And they can all buy that same data and they can all, you know, if one can reach me at that point, they can all reach me at that point. I've still, at the end of the day, got to choose which brand I'm going to trust and, and go with. And I think that's where the big idea of the brand still uh, still really matters. Great answer. Okay, so we talk about customer experience. I mean, you you mentioned that a moment ago, which is what sort of clients are asking for more and more in pitches. What should brands be thinking about when they are looking to provide seamless customer experiences? I mean, we talked about the the big idea a moment ago and the importance of that when, uh, you know, in terms of brand preference. But what about the other touch points? What what does a seamless customer experience look like today for a brand that you're speaking to, for instance? Well, I don't think the I don't think the fundamental principles of it uh, have changed. Well, for obviously, as we say, it starts with understanding yourself as a brand and what your big idea and what your kind of role in the world is. That that's sort of all. I mean, the ex, the, the ways these play out is different, but the principles stay the same. So that is still the same. And and I think customer uh, customer experience also then, as it always has, has started with understanding the customer journey and the touch points along that journey. What is the case now, though, of course, is that in many instances, those journeys are a, a lot more individualized because of the different ways we can buy, the different ways we can interact with brands, etc., and also the as we it's a cliched phrase, but of course we also have audience fragmentation because of the different channels that and all that blah blah blah. Everything all that your audience knows. So I think so. Nevertheless, you still need you still need to understand that that customer journey and how the brand can connect to its consumers along that journey. I think the honestly, I, I think the principles broadly stay true. You know, you need to be able to be understand who it is understand your purchase process and purchase cycle understand the different messages you need to give people along that purchase process you know some a product like a car might that might be a three-year process a product like a you know i don't know um, chewing gum or whatever you know utterly impulse purchase has a completely different cycle but you see you need to understand it for your brand and when you do connect with your uh, customer you have to uh, or your consumer or your potential consumer you know whatever it is you have to show up and be relevant to them you have to be differentiated to them you have to be a brand that they associate with your values i, I think those principles stay the same and, and in that sense i think data isn't a panacea i think data is a tool just like many other tools that, that we use you know and, I, and i'm not a data expert uh, but but data is a tool and, and like any tool it's only as good as as how you use it, and so you do have to have smart people who can who can look at the data and interpret it pro- effectively, uh, and can use it well. But but it is it is only a tool. So you talk about the three uh, buying process when it comes to making a major decision like buying a car. What does this look like in B two B, where the buying journey is far more complex? There's far more decision makers. Uh, very senior, very long sales cycles, high average deal values. What does creating seamless customer experiences look like 
when it comes to B2B marketing? I think that B2B is a very, very big space. So I think in some parts of B2B, for example, uh, I think brands still play a very important role. Uh, and and by, the, by brands, I mean brands that broadly operate and behave in the same way as a consumer brand might, for example. And I think in other parts of B2B, I think brands play a secondary or, 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 a, or a lesser role. Um, let's let's say, um, I don't think the principles change. I think you do have to understand within your sector what the purchase. What you know, I think the 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 first point is understanding first. Well, who your audience is. I mean, sometimes that's easier than others. Um, but who who are your audience? Um, what problem are you solving for them? Um, and then uh, as a business or a product uh, and and then working out what that what that purchase process is and I think one of the things with b2b is you sometimes do get into in fact you, you might often get into situations for example where the purchaser is not the end user I mean that, for example so let's say training training would be an example of that where where if you're a training business, you understand your end user, but often it's purchased by the learning and de- the head of learning and development or the head of HR, for example. And, and then who's the person you're trying to keep happy? You know, who's your client? You know, I mean, if the the L and D head is delighted because you've taken them to Wimbledon, but the people that go the people that go on the course think your course is rubbish, that's you know you, you you're not you know you're not going to win any more business from them. So I think I think I think B to B can be a lot more complicated, but I, I don't think the principles change. I do think the role of, um, I mean, of course, you also have the role of the, the rise, the inexorable rise of procurement. So even if the L and, so to take that example, the L&D head might be the person that chooses, but the person you end up negotiating with is the head of procurement. And of course, our businesses, I mean, we're, we're ours is, our business is B2B. Sure. We're a B2B business. In fact, I'll give you an example, actually. So when we were, when we have asked were merged with Vivendi, I remember some of the early conversations we had with Universal Music. Uh, you know, so we were very excited to go and talk to Universal Music. They were very excited to talk to us to work out what we could each, each how we could each help each other. And it struck me after after a while, after three months or so, that that we weren't really that we just didn't understand each other at all. Uh, and and one of the reasons we didn't is because our business is fundamentally a B2B business and their business is fundamentally a B2C business. Interesting. And so, so the way they go about making money and thinking about growth is profoundly different to us. It was a, and that, that seems like a small difference, but it, it, it wasn't. It was a really big difference in mm. terms of even though we're on the face of it, we're all in the sort of creative industries and the marketing and all that kind of stuff and they have their own, you know, sort of uh, marketing services businesses as well. It was a really big, it's really a cultural difference within the organizations. Really fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about diversity and inclusion because you're engaged in, in broadening the appeal of the advertising industry and see diversity and social mobility as key factors in the future health of the creative industries. How do we get more people of color and diverse social groups into the advertising and media world? And how do we get them more into senior positions within the boardroom because it's been it's been a problem for some time so so i'll give you i'll give you two 
if you like, contrasting example, the example that you gave, how do we get more people of color into the industry as a whole? And then, then your secondary question to that. And then we, then to contrast that with the challenge the industry has with uh, the gender pay gap, for example. Now, they're both challenges the industry mm. has, but they, they are both quite different in their nature. So the industry, like our, in, I would say our agencies are probably typical in that we employ about 56% of women. 56% of our employees are female, but we have a gender pay gap of around 20%, which, which means that uh, we have fewer women in senior management. So our challenge with regard to gender pay gap is not that we employ more women than men. The, the, the understanding, the challenge there is it's, it's, it's when you, the, our top quartile, which means the quarter of people who earn most in the company, suddenly the amount of women in that quartile drops off. So we have to understand very clearly and be very precise in terms of understanding why that is and what we're going to do about it. And then, as you say, uh, with regard to people of color, uh, at, at the moment, although I, I think things are, are changing, uh, I, at the moment, we don't attract enough people of color into the industry in the first, in, in the first place. So, 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 okay, we've got it. We've got two quite different challenges to, to sort out. And, and I think mm. the reason I say that is because the first thing to do if you're trying to fix a problem is really say, okay, quite specifically, what, what is the challenge here? It's the same as the challenge with regard to uh, the gender pay gap. We have to make sure that we have the systems in place, systems in place through our organizations to make sure that we are promoting and retaining people once they're in our business. I mean, I, I think in really simple terms, it's, it's the, the thing that links both questions is uh, recruitment, promotion, and retention. And what we have to do is we have to look at those three areas. We have to say, first of all, who and how are we recruiting? So you have strategies around recruitment, I think, to make sure that your place that people of color want to go, are we on, are we on people of color's radar? Is it a place that they feel they can come and belong? I think belong is an interesting word to use because it's it's a case of people coming and, and feeling. Everybody, I want anybody that comes to Havas, whoever they are, whatever their background, color, gender, sexuality, whatever, I want people to be able to come and feel like they belong in that environment. I think we have work to do, but we are clear that that's something we do need to do. We have work to do to try and uh, improve that. So once, so I actually think a big part of it is data. You asked, you asked a question about data. I, I actually, the more that I get into this topic, I think data is really important because you can measure all of these points. You can measure who you're interviewing. You can measure who is, well, even before interviewing, you can measure who is coming and what kind of what type of people are coming and asking us and approaching us for jobs. Then who are we interviewing? Who are we hiring? Who are we promoting? Who are we bonusing? Um, and we can, we can measure. The data's all there. The data's all there. And I think when you do look at the data, uh, you often get some you know, uncomfortable, you know, for somebody like me, you know, the leader of the business, you, you find out some uncomfortable things, you know, you think, mm. oh, well, blimey. I mean, you know, nobody's deliberately, but, but, but why have we, why have we ended up promoting, you know, more women than men or, or whatever it is? No, sorry. <laughs> no, not that. The other way around. Why have we ended up promoting more men than women? Or, or, and, and I think the data actually is very, is a very, very powerful way of understanding who is coming into your company, who's leaving, who are you promoting, 
who are you bonusing or, or whatever it is and then and then i think so you you look at where you are what what so that's understand where you are today one of the things we've done so when i when i joined uh when i joined havas it's probably 6 years ago now i i wrote uh what i called at the time well that's we still call i call, i called at the time the dni charter so i sat down and i wrote a 10 point set of objectives really um around ethnic representation roles of women in the company etc sure uh, and to be honest with you i i i i pretty well i, I kind of made it up i mean i didn't do it particularly scientifically but i thought well you know i'm going to kind of i'm going to put and we and we used we we set ourselves some some targets some percentage targets you know we set ourselves some objectives it wasn't just kind of oh we'd like to be a nicer place to work we said you know we this is the kind of this is the sort of representation we want through our company and you know, it's a slightly, um, it's it's a it's a slightly it's a slightly scary thing writing numbers down in any context because if you write a number down, you could be see. Well, hang on a minute, you've, you've missed it, you failed. Um, but I, have but, you hit it? Have you got it or not? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's like oh, it's pretty scientific. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty clear. Um, and so we we actually did that uh, first six years ago, and then last summer after the Black Lives Matter protests, we sat down with our with our D and I leadership team, and we we. We we asked ourselves, okay, do, let, let's let's just revisit everything, including the charter, and we changed we changed some of it. I mean, we we broadly agreed. We looked particularly around some of the metrics we set ourselves, and we said, actually, you know, we've done all right against that one. We haven't done as well there, etc. Uh, and I think that's I think that's the that to, to me, you have to set yourself some targets, and you have to continually assess how you're doing against those. But I, then I think a lot of the actions you need to take are actually a lot. So they're they're the big sort of headlines, but I think a lot of the actions you end up taking are really, in some ways, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of very specific. In, in an individually, they might just be uh, individually uh, not seem that huge, but 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 it's but that change all change comes from lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of those small actions. Like for example, okay, we have to have mixed shortlists. You know, we are going to look at you know who we're promoting. We are going to be as, trans- as transparent as we can about sharing our data around some of these things. We are going to t- just talk to the company more. So for example, we've asked, we, like I said, we have 15 individual businesses in the UK. We've, we've set the, 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 ten, the, the D&I charter targets for the group. We're now in the process of we've gone to each of those companies. Each of those companies has to have somebody on the exec team not just a not, not sort of just somebody in the group but somebody on the exec team of those companies who is the who is the um d and i ambassador for that business so they are specifically tasked with the implementate the, the translation let's say of the group uh the group strategy and objectives down into their individual business and they are then each business is then tasked with this defining its own individual D and I strategy and how they are going to take our group objectives and make it happen within those individual companies. So in some senses, it's a fairly sort of uh, uh, kind of standard management theory in some sense, and you have a set of objectives up here and you, you push it down, but I into the right down through the business. Um, but that's what, re- that's what it requires. And I, and I think, you know, I'm sorry, it's a very long answer to your question, but, but, but I'll give you my final speech on the subject, which is, one of the things that struck me in the summer was that over the past three years, yeah, probably three years, we've had four um, absolutely massive um, 
society shaking, if you like, events, and not just UK society, global society. And those four are Me Too, um, Extinction Rebellion, or the climate emergency, whatever word you want to use, Black Lives Matter, and COVID. Sure. And any one of those on their own, any one represented a period, a, a moment of discontinuous change, almost instantaneous and discontinuous change. Taken together, you know that is a that is a huge change, sure. and one that I think we are closer to the start, a lot, 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 lot closer to the start of than we are. The end. I'm not sure you ever. I'm not sure there is an end, but we're certainly closer to the start. And 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 I think that what are there some linking factors in these? And I I call those heat, humanity, ecology, and technology. And I think what, but, but I think what. What's important about heat is it's taken these these topics that, that were within uh, the, the the debate within business, but it's shifted them right on to the middle of the boardroom table. Sure. So I think any business now, you know, that has to have heat as part of whether it uses my language, but but has to have heat as part of its fundamental business strategy. And I think that is happening, by the way. I think we, we can be optimistic in the sense that I think that is happening. I'm not saying that, you know, we couldn't go faster. I'm not saying there's more we couldn't do. But I think that businesses of the future, the successful businesses of the future, uh, you know, will have heat right in the middle of the boardroom table, which means it's the responsibility of, you know, the CEO, the CMO, the CFO, not the HR department or, or whatever it is. And I think that once that starts happening... I think once the business case is made, and this sounds really crass and sort of very uh, sort of capitalist of me to say it, but I, I, I think that it's true. Once the business case is made that actually having a diverse workforce and uh, an equal representation uh, across all, all the genders has been realized, once the penny drops, then I think that's when ideally we should start to see some fundamental shifts in 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 that direction so as you say heat humanity ecology and technology those three forces when they come together and the boardroom realize actually by having this combined way of thinking we're actually a better company a more profitable company uh, etc go down the list i think that's when things will start to change no 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 question i, I agree with that but I, I and by the way i I definitely am a capitalist. I mean, I'm afraid I, I you know, maybe a bit old fashionable, but I, I am. And I, you? To, no? Yeah, CEO no, of can Havis? you believe it? CEO of an advertising agency. But, <laughs> I, but a lot of people in advertising don't admit to it anymore. But anyway, right. that's that. But, but, but I suppose I'd say something a bit, I agree with you, but I, to, to broaden the point a little bit, I think what, what, what is happening as a consequence of heat is we've already seen a fundamental change, I'll give you a couple of examples. I think it's changed the relationship between brands and the boardroom, for example. I think when I started in the industry, it was very possible, if not common, for the, the let's say, a, a, an organization, a corporate culture to own a whole load of brands. And for those brands, the, the values of those brands to have very little connection, if any connection, back to what the company did. They were just things that the company owned over there. That isn't possible anymore. You know, um, you know, the, the so the, the, can, the distance between boardrooms and brands has, has vanished to almost nil. And, and for example, purpose-driven marketing is an example of that. You can't be a purpose-driven brand. You have to be a purpose-driven business. The, the, the relationship between 
employers and employees has changed. The relationship between employees and employers has changed. So empl- em- employers now are involved at, at, in in um, in in conversations with their employees that wouldn't have been the case, I think, even uh, even twelve months, eighteen months ago. I, I think that it's changing the relationship between uh, suppliers. In that you talked about B two B, it's changing the co- conversations between suppliers and um, uh, you know agencies or whoever it is, and between agencies and their suppliers. Now, of course, I'm just using agencies as a shorthand for the business world. So I think these I think these changes have I think these changes have at least, well, they've certainly started to happen. I don't, like I said, I think we're nearer the start than the end. But these, uh, you know, already I can see these changes are happening. And I think in the ecology space, for example, you know, uh, it used to be the case, well, to be honest, not just in the ecology space, but, but it used to be the case you'd say, well, okay, I'm going to go and choose that ice cream brand because, you know, I, I kind of like the brand and the ice cream tastes nice. I mean, and I think already people are asking, well, hang on a minute, what what is that, what is that company's, what does that company believe? What is that company doing? What is that company's DNI policy? What's that company's environmental policy? People are already starting to ask. Where these does questions. the milk come from? Where does the milk come from? Yeah, Where does exactly. The packaging come from. Right. How far has it? Tra- how far has it travelled to get to me? And I think, I, like I say, I, I don't think this conversation. I, I, we're, I'm not saying that every time anybody picks anything up that, but but these are conversations that are real, that are live, and people are already making choices based on these considerations. And I think that that's, that's a, that, that, that is only going in one direction. That's only going to become more important, not less. So, so I think it's, yeah, I think it's, it's not just about, which I agree with you, that, that, that having a, an organization, a diverse organization or a, a, a diverse team that represents the kind of society that exists within is morally the right thing and will out, outperform I think there's also external pressure uh, as well in terms of consumer and customer and supplier behavior. Sure. Chris, I can speak to you all, all day, but we're fast running out of time. I can't let you go without asking our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. I know that we're over time, but I'll make them super short and sweet. Uh, let's get into the first one. Tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Okay, I'll try and do this quickly. Uh, there was a, there was I was hired uh, in 2003 as the managing director of Gray, which at the time was, uh, you know, technically speaking, well, a dog of a business. I was hired as part of a turnaround team. There was five of us. You know, we were this thrusting young team to come and turn turn around the agency. And the short version is, uh, within about two years, all of the people that I joined with had left, and by the way, had went, went on to stellar careers elsewhere. So the you know, mm. uh, but I stayed for, for, and it's a long story, possibly to understand why. I'm not sure I really understand why. But six years later, I was still there. The agency was still a dog of a business. Um, and if you've been brought in to fix something, and you're still there six years later and it's not fixed, you're you've become part <laughs> of the problem. You're no longer the solution. That's the short answer. Yeah, right. yeah. I was definitely, I was definitely <laughs> part of the problem. Uh, and 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 I learned. You know, I learned an awful lot from that. Uh, I think I learned a lot about myself. I often question why I did stay. And I think I stayed partly because I wasn't brave enough to leave, honestly, Mm. even though I didn't know it at the time. I think in that was possibly the genesis of a lot that I ended up writing about in the book in terms of, you know, you learn a lot of good things about how not to do stuff as long as you learn the right lesson. God, that's a convoluted sentence, but I think you know what I mean. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that was, that was, and, and honestly, I also would say that, 
you know, we all love hearing about, like you asked the question, everybody, everybody, everybody loves asking a question about, go on, tell me about when it went wrong. And we love, you know, we, we all love hearing about it, right? Um, and often people will tell you anecdote as I am now, and it's sort of a bit lighthearted and it's a, it all worked out in the end. But what is really important to remember, and I have to keep remembering it myself, is that when it's happening to you, it's bloody miserable. Yeah. You know, and, and I was bloody miserable. I felt like I was a cork bobbing on the ocean and really I should have taken my own destiny in my hands more. Tell us about some of your favourite books. I mean, we've spoken about yours. What else has been instrumental to you throughout your career and life? Uh, are, are, we, are we talking business books or books generally? Fiction, non-fiction, whatever. Okay, well, I, I, I'm... I'm not a big reader of business books, <laughs> so I'm going to be honest with you. So, Even though you've but I, written one yourself. Yeah, 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 there you go. <laughs> uh, but, but, I, but I am a very uh, big reader. I read, a, I read a lot and I always have, and I go through various phases of reading different sorts of books. I think you learn from everything. I don't think you have to read a business book to understand about business and people and the world and society and all those kind of things, okay? So I... But, I'd say my favorite book of all time, probably my favorite novel of all time, I'd say is probably Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy oh, interesting. by John le Carre. I mean, I think he is actually a genius or sadly, sadly was a genius. I mean, really, I felt about, I, I'm not really a, a you know, I, I listen to music, but I'm not one of these people for whom music plays this massive role in my life and I, I it's probably a lot of people are going to send me hate for saying this, but you know, I just wasn't, you know, I was when David Bowie died, you know, everybody, everybody's throwing themselves around. And I was like, well, it's just sad, but it doesn't, mm. I felt, I felt about John le Carre dying the way they felt it, the way they felt about David Bowie dying. That's my point. I mean, it's not going to, uh, yes, I probably shouldn't have gone there, but you know, you're my point. Sure. He, he was my sure. David Bowie. I That's get your my point. point. It's not about dissing anybody. Yeah. Um, so John le Carre, I just think it's a genius. I didn't, I, that book is probably my favorite of all time. The best, the best novel that I've read, uh, in the past 12 months, which is by an, uh, an author called Pat Barker, she wrote, she won the Booker Prize uh, probably 20 years ago for a book called Re- Regeneration, which was a, a, an absolutely brilliant book about Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon, the, the first World War poets. Um, but she wrote a book, published a book last year called Silence of the Girls, which I, 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 I don't know if anybody listening is familiar with the Iliad. The Iliad is an incredible story, but she she... And the story pivots around a, a woman called Briseis, I think. But but in the original Iliad, this woman has almost no mention. She's just a pivot point that the story hinges around. Mm-hmm. So you've got the huge story, but but she actually is an almost invisible figure I in the story. And this. Pat Barker retells the Iliad from from her perspective, this woman's point of view, and it's just. It's just, I mean, first of all, the Iliad, the characters in the Iliad, uh, uh, it's an astonishing story anyway, Achilles and I'm really into my, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that's an amazing book. And uh, the, sorry, I don't know if, I suspect everybody's going, I don't want to read any of these books, but then the most, the other, the third, I'm going to keep going. They're your books. No, 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 keep going. The, The third, the third is a book that I read most recently, actually, that I blew my mind that is a bit niche, <laughs> to be honest. Because the first two um, weren't niche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is called War in the Shadows. And it's and it's about an organization called SOE, SOE, which was uh, the organization that the British ran into occupied France during the war. 
uh, essentially kind of running-ish, to simplify it, running the resistance. But this is a book about astonishingly brave people. Hmm. But, 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 I mean, we talk about brave in advertising. Come on. I mean, <laughs> astonishingly brave people. Men and women, British people and French people, and, and other nationalities as well, actually. Um, and it's about betrayal, uh, and it's about intrigue, and it's uh, it's just a, it's just an absolutely amazing book. And it's written by a, and it's and it's it's the, it's it's amazing because it's written by a British lawyer, Patrick Marnham, and he has pieced together a story. Uh, you know, it's a forensic. I don't mean forensic as in it's slow it's a, it's a it's kind of a rip roaring tale but it's a it's a forensic piece of investigation this guy has done to what he's uncovered something that's still a lot of which is still locked away in the vaults it's so sensitive what some of the things that that went on uh, and it's a, it's an amazing book so there you go three great recommendations uh, there two two spy books in there so maybe i maybe i should have i don't yeah. i don't only read spy books but that's not deliberate but anyway there you go Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and War in the Shadows. Both of my Amazon yeah. very long reading list. Uh, Amazon Prime <laughs> or Netflix? What are you? What are you watching or streaming that's good? You know, I, th- there you go. So I could I could talk to you about books. I could give you. I could keep going on books. I'm I'm almost totally stumped when it comes to I I don't watch really? much uh, TV because I I have. It's not because I'm kind of like one of these people. Oh, you know, I'm too highbrow to watch telly. It's not. It's not. It's not that. I I have quite a short attention span, and uh, you know, when I find a film or a series that I love, I, I love it. I find a lot of stuff. It almost. I almost feel like a lot of uh, films or, or documentaries or whatever kind of talk down to me a bit. Mm. I, I, I want them to, I want them to stretch me. I want them to make it me, I want them to make it difficult for me to, to, to work through this. I want them to have complicated themes. I don't want them to tell me, I don't want me to, to tell, make it really obvious what they think or, or, or think they know what I think. I want to be provoked or challenged more. Um, and I feel like I just get that more for books. That said, I mean, the last, the, the last film that I watched, and this is a bit, uh, parochial because I I live in Suffolk, so I watched The Dig, which was uh, the uh, the Ray, Ralph Fiennes thing about uh, uncovering Sutton Hoo, which is a big kind of burial. It's on Netflix, um, mm. which was you know it's, I, I don't think it's going to win Oscars, but it was quite it was quite it was quite nicely done, nicely shot. Yeah, and as you may have gleaned, I'm quite I'm very interested in history. History, I, I like history, so I find history fascinating. So. That is the red thread throughout all of these recommendations. Yeah. I actually, the film that, that I, I actually, I enjoyed Tenet, by the way. I mean, there you go, that's old school. I went to the cinema to see Tenet. Probably the last thing that was shown. Yeah, it was. It was like, it was like the only thing in the cinema. Like as soon as the cinemas opened <laughs> last summer, I was like, I, I, gotta, I really enjoyed it. I can't, I'm terrible with actors' names, really? but that guy who played the lead, he was just amazing. So cool. I mean, it's, yeah. it was, I really, really, really enjoyed it. It's one of those Christopher Nolan films that, by the way, I mean, it, it, yeah, it doesn't talk down to you. I mean, it's certainly like, uh, I've no idea what's going on, but it looks really good. Everybody's <laughs> cool and the clothes are amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah, so. Great. Love it. Yeah. Okay, that's on my list as well. Last question, final question. What is it you know about leadership today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? I, I suppose t- two answers for that that are, that are sort of different, but I guess kind of complementary. The first is that I, I don't think I really thought about, I mean, obviously I understood the concept, but but I, I don't think I thought about leadership. And one of the things that I 
I feel now is that one of the most important things you can have as a leader is a, is, 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 a, is a clear point of view for yourself about what leadership is, your leadership philosophy, if you like. And I, of course, I'd like everybody to agree with mine, but, but unbelievably, even more important than agreeing with me is to just have a point of view, even if your point of view is completely different. So, so the most important thing is, right. is, to, is to, I think, to have, a, have a, 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 your a leadership philosophy, or at least go through a process of, of working that out. That would be my answer one. And answer two, I'd, I'd say that sort of clarity around it's about getting stuff done. It, it, it's not about being cleverest. It's not about having to show off how brilliant your sort of propositions and all that sort of stuff is. They matter, but leadership is about that. Is about that journey. How are you? How each day are you pushing you yourself and your team forward closer towards your objective? Absolutely loved it, Chris. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I've, I've loved it. Thank you so much for having me on. I really, really enjoyed it. We have been speaking with Chris Hurst. He is currently the global CEO of Havas Creative. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 115 such conversations we've had with world-class leaders in media and advertising. I'm Nathan Alibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. This episode was brought to you by Account Insight, the B2B programmatic advertising platform for B2B agencies. In this four-part series, I sat down with co-founder and chief product officer, Tony Chamilias, to discuss the business, the history, and how Account Insight helps B2B agencies deliver targeted, tailored ads to high-value companies. In this week's episode, Tony and I discussed the interview that you just listened to with Chris Hurst, the CEO of Havas UK. Tony, Chris and I had a long chat about the role of advertising in B2B decision-making, how should B2B brands be thinking about how best to target their ideal customer without wasting money on people who are just never going to buy from them? Oh, that's a really good question. I think one could rephrase the question by saying, well, why making mass communication if you only sell to a few companies or industries? And, and that's the name of the game in B2B. And we, also, we see that traditional tools have been built and thought for B2C. If you look upon retargeting, if, if you look about traditional cookie solutions, they are built on volumes. They are built on a market that's not really the one for B2B. So again, coming back to why targeting to everyone, if you can only, as B2B companies, sell or care to sell about for on a few companies. Uh, then the, the next question is really, if you want to focus on just those who are in the market, well, you need to know who they are. So it's not just enough to say, well, we need to focus on the right companies. Then the next question will be, well, who are these right companies? There are a few things that our customers leverage, and, and we see these as best practices. You often come with sales-driven insights from your sales pipeline, from your CRM, from your own marketing automation. You already have signals on who's interacting with you. But as B2B company, you see that the sales cycles are very long. They are not linear. And you need to make sure that you can support all efforts on these companies to accelerate the deals, to close faster deals and to close bigger deals but you know who they are 
in this context, account-based advertising is extremely focused because you've got already the list of companies that you want to accelerate and we, and we can make sure that we ring fence the communication only to those and that we report individually how they react to the piece of communication. That's one part of the answer. A second one is one where you've got a big potential market and you want to listen to the interactions of these companies with media that's out there. What are they consuming? What are they reading? That's what's being known as intent marketing. So it's, it's putting together a huge net, listening to the signals that employees of the companies are leaving on the internet when they read articles about topics which are relevant to the products that you're selling. And that's an area where we can help by casting a wide net on the various pieces of media that are being consumed by the companies you want to sell to and presenting them and say, guys, you've got this large audience, but by the way, these are the companies today showing patterns of consumption that show that they are in market. They are looking for solutions like yours. Let's do something about that. Either way, whether it's sales driven or driven by the signals they leave, it's all about looking at this rule of Pareto. All companies work with the same rule. All companies know that they have 20% of the customers that generate 80% of the revenue. It is important for marketing to invest on the right accounts so that you don't overinvest on the companies with low revenue potential and you place higher emphasis on those where stakes are higher, on those that if you close the deal, you know you're in business for the next year or two because they're really generating revenue. And that's what you can do as well with account-based advertising is make sure that you focus the communication and the marketing investment, not just on the right companies because they're willing to buy, but also on the right companies for you because you are willing to sell to them because they've got the right potential. So if a B2B agency is thinking about using account-based advertising for their clients, how should they get started? I mean, what are the right sort of B2B agencies that should be thinking about this themselves? What's the profile of the right sort of B2B agency? And then if they do want to start using this for their client, what's the starting point? Well, there are two, two parts to this question is what, in terms of B2B agencies, which are the right agencies to start thinking about account-based marketing? The way we see this works best is in agencies who already handle either the communication piece or other channels that could be uh, social communication or marketing automation where account-based advertising is the natural fit as an additional uh, channel that can amplify the communication. So it's either agencies who've got strong understanding on um, omnichannel communication or who've got a compelling history to tell, who are creative agencies, but they need not just to succeed, not just the, the right message, but you need to target that to the right person. Uh, 
So if you can bring both together, then account-based advertising is real, the right fit here. I think the starting point is uh, talking to us and we can take them through a consulting uh, onboarding. Is, is an, it's, it's all about really an getting sharing the same vision on wh- what it is that we're trying to achieve. Account-based advertising alone, we, we've seen that it's not the only answer to a communication channel, but it's certainly part of the puzzle. It's providing with a fundamental piece of communication. So it's, it's all about understanding what are we trying to achieve? Is, is, is the objective about creating awareness? Then we can go for a, a broad piece of communication on many companies that should learn about the solutions. But we could also have situations where it's all about sales acceleration. In that case, we need to build more personalized pieces of communication so that we can be relevant on the companies we want to target. So so, so the answer is account-based advertising is a tool and you can use it to fit different uh, uh, scenarios, whether that's uh, awareness, demand acceleration, influencing buyers, or identifying who is in market. All that's something that you can achieve with account-based advertising. 